So if you think about that from a 10,000 feet perspective, what we're really saying is that the stock to, for the stock market to do well, we need the real economy to tank. That is probably the most stupid assessment, the, the, the worst way we can assess everything. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. 2022 was a bruising year for investors. Will 2023 offer any relief or will the beatings continue? For insight into important investing questions like these, extra weight should be placed on the answers from those who are actually putting capital at risk. So today, we welcome Steen Jacobson back to the program. Steen is the Chief Economist and Chief Investment Officer at Saxo Bank, which manages billions in client assets. When we spoke to Steen last, a year ago, he predicted the Fed switch to hiking and tightening would catch the markets by surprise, and boy, was he proven correct. Steen, it's wonderful to see you again, my friend. Thanks so much for staying up late in Copenhagen to speak with us. It's always a pleasure, Adam. Uh, you've got a great forum, and uh, you and I have been friends for many years, so uh, it's like having a, a friendly dinner conversation. I, I always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. And I hope that someday, Steen, not too long from now, we can do this in person. That would be wonderful to have that dinner conversation actually at the same table as you. Um, well, look, a uh, number of questions for you. Um, but let's start with the one I like to ask at the beginning of these discussions, just to kick them off. What is your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, it's a big one. Uh, not that my uh, opinion matters at all, but uh, I, I think there is uh, only one way to answer that question. That is what concerns me long term and what concerns me short term. Uh, I think the long term is the only one that really matters because the rest is just noise. But uh, in the long term, I think we are in a new phase of deglobalization. And with deglobalization, of course, we have the two biggest countries in the world, China uh, on a strategy they call dual circular, which is to become self-reliant. And that of course recently have been met by the US and their CHIPS Act, which is also about self-reliance. So in a world that has been used to globalization and the uh, labor uh, benefits uh, overseas, the uh, energy arbitrage that we could do in the, in the Far East because we could access uh, electricity produced by mainly coal, which was significantly cheaper than the ones we find both in Europe and the US. I think we are moving to a you know, position where the Ukraine will make everyone acutely aware that technology is in a, a, a competition and strategy from governments needs to be enacted in terms of both resourcing, base loads energy, but also overall how countries perceive themselves most you know prominently seen by the the big change in germans uh, and germany's uh, approach to military and the ability to defend themselves that's number one so deglobalization is the massive theme which i think is underestimated because it's elusive the second thing is that we live in an economy which is operating wrong how do i know that i know that because the way that the present market thinks is that they need the real economy to tank. They need a recession to force a pivot from the Federal Reserve. So if you think about that from a 10,000 feet perspective, what we're really saying is that the stock to, for the stock market to do well, we need the real economy to tank. 
that is probably the most stupid assessment, the, the, the worst way we can assess everything. What used to be the case was, of course, when the stock market is doing well, it was based on the real economy doing well. Instead, we have inverted, inverted that correlation. And that you know, gives me this, the final point in terms of the long term. As we talk today, the U.S. Uh, approximately have 90% of all asset value, MTR uh, platform, uh, the likes, and only 10% in the real economy. So we have a massive disconnect that created the inflation in 22 and 21 from the fact that simply the real economy is too small for the combined combination of fiscal, monetary, and green transformation. Uh, so that's sort of the long-term deglobalization. The fact that the uh, economic setup is, preaches that we need a weak economy to get a strong stock market. And most importantly, uh, in terms of allocation, that 90% of all assets in the U.S. is basically, uh, you know, MTR, uh, if, if I'm, I'm, I'm very prerogative. In the short term, I, I think we need to solve for the uh, dynamic trio of wages for goods prices and energy. Uh, none of them, in my opinion, is on the downside. So this whole concept that inflation will flatten out and even reach uh, between 2 and 3% as a target is not only naive, but it's not based on facts. And then finally, uh, which is going to drive the market in the short term, the conundrum that we had with the Federal Reserve that despite having forced through a number of 75 basis point hikes, the financial conditions today are easier than when they started that uh, increased step up that we saw. Uh, so ironically, you know, if the world gets as gets it as it wants it, that we get a recession, a Fed pivot, you know, the only thing that will happen is that we reaccelerate the economy, and in second half of this year, reaccelerate the inflation. So I think you know, very long answer to a very, very uh, simplistic question. I guess in, in essence, because and, and up and down on, on, on equities. But I, I think these these are the pieces that we need to solve for. It's never going to be about whether we get a recession or not, and then reverse engineering your call on the stock market based on whether this binary outcome of recession is happening or not. And just to put the record straight from, from the beginning here, Adam, I don't see any recession in the US. I've been in this market for way too long, as you can see by the lag of hair. And uh, the full employment situation continues to be one which cannot uh, create a, a recession, certainly not in the short term. I doubt even in the medium term, because simply the financial conditions are too easy. Um, all right, a lot packed into this first answer. Um, and, and Steen, I will note that you are an outlier for the folks that I've been interviewing recently on the recession point. So maybe at some point in this discussion, we can dig into that just a little bit more. Um, but uh, great answer, obviously, deglobalization. Um, that's something that's um, really gathered steam since you and I last talked a year ago. Um, this element of having to uh, uh, tank the economy to save the markets. It's almost got a little bit of a Vietnam era. We have to destroy the village to save the village mindset about it. I agree that just sounds like bizarro thinking. Um, and then this point about the the digital economy or, or, or so much of the economy now being you know digital 
that it's overwhelming the 10% of the economy that deals with real things and real infrastructure. Um, you did bang that drum uh, several times when I've talked to you in the past. And I think that, you know, with all the supply chain shortages and things that we've seen over the past two years, um, I think you've been proven really right on that. And, and maybe we should start there. My guess is that that's not something you see resolving um, anytime soon. It's sort of going to be like just a, a macro trend we're going to be managing. And I know in the past that you have said that that's sort of sets up a pretty bullish case for commodities because we're going to need to invest more in the the real infrastructure uh, because uh, right now the 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 over the, the much greater digital part of the economy is is kind of throttled by the constraint right now of the physical side of things. So there's going to need to be a lot of investment going into the physical side to accommodate the growth that the the larger part of the economy wants. Did I capture that correctly? Absolutely. I mean, 22 was uh, was about how the higher marginal cost of capital forced by the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates spilling over into the free trade or the free uh, sort of opportunity of the digital economy, which of course uses the discount rate to price the total value of companies. So it's not like a company like Microsoft is worse off today than it was at the beginning of last year. It's simply the cash flow is worth less because of the uh, higher interest rate. But what also tend to have happened over the last 10 to 15 years is that we have crowded out with an economist expression, the ability of investment into the real economy, because why would anyone invest into infrastructure, the last mile delivery, uh, baseload energy uh, generation, better grid networks, when the opportunity and the cash flow that came from being in the digital economy soaked up all the capital. I think probably best seen by the mighty rise of both ARC and, and partly Tesla. As, as an illustration, I'm, I'm not making no judgment on that, whether they did wrong or right. I'm just saying so much money flow to those kind of entities that it took away from the ability to invest. And as we go into 2023, the amount of KBEX that sits with what is needed in the real economy is still running significantly below inflation rate and in some cases even negatively. So I think it's it's a great sort of uh, uh, way to just think about this as if you do nothing about the actual problem, you're not going to be in a different situation. The market thinks that the recession is going to solve uh, some things. And, you know, clearly in Europe, we've seen that the you know, demand and electricity is down 20% because all of a sudden all my friends are putting on the uh, the laundry at two o'clock at night because that's when it's cheaper. Uh, but, but, but the 20% is way, way short of what we have. So, you know, I expect that commodities should return somewhere between 15 and 20% easily in, in 23, because what we now enter into is an investment cycle where governments and subsidies increasingly will be chasing the ability to one, create secure baseload energy, which was the big problem in Europe, to some extent also in the US, and secondarily uh, investment that over the you know, 10 to 15 years can actually reset the whole conversation we had about green transformation. The green transformation, as I think I've said several times, is not an issue. We need green transformation. We need the reduction of CO2, but it's not going to be on the sort of base case that everyone uses that alternative energy is the solution. No, it is part of the solution, but, at, you know, as we've seen over 22, but also in 23, you know, the increase in nuclear power needs to happen. Fusion energy is showing, you know, 
significant progress. I don't know what's going to work, but just let's make sure that we invest in a broad spectrum of new energy sourcing, not pretending that we know which one is going to break through and which one is going to come first in uh, home in terms of uh, providing marginal lower cost of energy. Because you know that's another way to see the economic system. If you gave me the opportunity, Adam, to save the world economy, I will use my magic wand and make the marginal cost of energy zero. That will mm -hmm. release a huge amount of productivity. Uh, we could do vertical farming. We could do desalination of water. So in that case, we could, you know, solve for some of the uh, uh, global warming phenomena that we have. Some of the flooding that goes on. We'll have ability to do a huge amount of inroads in terms of medical care and, and, and research. But what are we doing right now? We're actually forcing the marginal cost of energy upwards, which means that we are moving and we are projecting into the future that we uh, are going to come up short. So doing nothing means doing uh, getting nothing. And that happens into, if we really want to make it complicated, a social society where, you know, and, and I'm going to be a little bit hard on the young generation, they want nothing, they're getting nothing, and they absolutely do nothing in terms of you know resetting the score. Uh, I'm not saying they're lazy, I actually think they're the smartest ever, but I don't think you know focusing on eating uh, plant-based food is gonna solve what is really needed. What's really needed is more people, more investment into the real economy, getting real solution, getting real jobs. Okay. Um... And, uh, and and all of that, just to put an investment lens on there, you think will manifest uh, prediction, obviously not a guarantee that commodities will do well this year as a result of this demand, um, returning somewhere between 15 to, to 20%. Um, on, on the energy side of things, Steen, um, you have, it's not the first time you've made that point to me. And again, the last time we had you on this channel, I believe was right before uh, the conflict in the Ukraine broke out. And so um, I, I've got to imagine, so correct these words that I'm putting in your mouth if they're wrong, is that um, everything we've seen in the past year in terms of uh, the, um, the change in energy flows around the world, and I would say almost the way in which the, the, the West weaponized the financial system against Russia, we're now beginning to see the weaponization of energy against the West. And certainly, you know, Russia has been doing that with natural gas supplies uh, to Europe. We've then retaliated with, uh, you know, embargoes against Russian oil. We obviously had the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. So I've got to imagine that as strongly as you felt about this beforehand when we talked, I'm guessing the developments over the past year makes you even more confident that that this you know heightened investment in energy going forward has to happen. Yeah. So you know, if what what is the main lesson from 22 in terms of the Ukraine and the energy side is that there is new alliances being built globally, and these new alliances have meant that in the energy sector that the global trade routes have changed. As we closed down uh, Russia at the end of last year, uh, you can see that in Milas, uh, tarnished done on, on the shipping routes, they are now longer because we you know, can't use uh, accessible oil in, in Europe. And for the record, Europe continued through the Ukraine uh, a war to import oil from oil of Russia, despite what the public uh, opinion right. seems to, or the public uh, sense was. But 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 the real impact here is that someone like Saudi Arabia uh, met up with China, 
agreed that now in the future, uh, energy should be changed in on the Shanghai exchange in one or alternatively as Russia in gold. Uh, Russia, India, uh, Saudi um, and China constitute an extremely powerful uh, new alliances which have aligned goals of not being dependent on the West. So to a large extent, we are seeing the sunset of the mercantile order that the West have used. We have always been this uh, quo, quo uh, you know, bartering uh, concept that if we could trade with people, we could also democratize them. I think that strategy has failed. And I think to be honest, you know, people need to realize there are more countries in the world that are non-democratic than democratic. And there's a number of countries calling themselves democratic that at least in a, a Nordic version would not be there, but not yeah. be demo democracy. So, so I'm not saying democracies is the best. I'm just making the point that democracy is a minority and these bigger players in terms of their ability to sell oil or buy oil and buy commodity and, and sell commodities, they have aligned themselves in, in a new align, a new setup. And that setup is going already changing the trade routes as we see in terms of shipping routes, uh, but it would also make it far more important to accelerate that investment into energy. So absolutely, Adam, this is uh, only the first year in the long process of redesigning not only uh, the the energy sector but the global uh, phenomenon. And 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 as an aside, uh, we had a uh, we do the outrageous prediction, which is you know calls, which is not uh, supposed to be our normal calls, but sort of prerogative. And one of them was that uh, you know prerogatively we said that exactly those fun countries I just mentioned would leave the IMF because the supranational entities, all the way from WHO to IMF to the World Bank, they're losing their integrity first, but secondly, the ability for them to actually do something you know, constructive is, is disappearing as, as time goes on. And, and that is a new crisis because remember, all of these were born in the aftermath of World War II. So we are redefining the global trend. We are redefining the geopolitical landscape. And inside that, we have a fundamental issue which is actually a good one because you know we need to invest in real people, real solution, real strategizing, um, which I think, to be honest, will lead us to when we come out of this early stage to the most productive years in history. Okay, um, I'm glad you ended with that last line, <laughs> uh, and we'll get there in a bit as to why you think we will hopefully enjoy the most productive years in history. Um, this topic, though, of what has been a globalized pretty unipolar world, you know, really revolving around um, the U.S. to a large extent. The, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency um, and a lot of cooperation around the world. Um, this bifurcation now that that's it was probably underway beforehand, but but definitely uh, completely accelerated by uh, the, the global schism over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, that's come up a lot in, in recent uh, interviews that I've done. In fact, all this week so far, it's come up in, in, in every interview. Um, and I won't, so I won't, I won't put up the same visuals I had earlier, but there's been a lot of discussion about um, the recent report that was written by Credit Suisse's uh, Zoltan Pozar. I'm guessing you probably read that, Steen, but he largely was sort of dissecting comments that um, President Xi of China uh, made at uh, a recent Arab States conference, 
where he basically laid out a plan where he said, hey, you know, we as China are going to make massive infrastructure investments um, and energy deals uh, with the Gulf region here, um, you know, largely for the reasons you stated there, Steen, but like, you know, hey, we, we, are, we are super serious about this. The timeline is sort of a three to five year timeline on getting it all up and running. And one of the things that Zoltan said, you know, kind of coming out of all this, this, this sort of schism into Team West and then Team Bricks is probably a good way to think about it, um, is that it's going to be quite inflationary for the West, meaning that um, the, the the cost of uh, key commodities, especially energy ones, is is likely going to be higher because there's going to be, you know, to a certain extent, more um, competition for them. Um, they may not all be priced in dollars going forward, right? We may have a petro yuan and whatnot, but that um, the the prioritization of the flows may be shifting. So, you know, he basically said there just might not be that much low cost oil priced in dollars going forward um, because it, it's going to be a lot of these commodities are going to be more encumbered by the East now going forward. And of course, in, in, in parallel with that, if we're doing more friend shoring, you know, where we're pulling our supply chains out of uh, super low cost places uh, that are less friendly to us now and putting them to, you know, more friendly, nearer competitor, nearer countries, um, and even maybe even, you know, home, home shoring, uh, some of that stuff. Uh, well, you know, labor costs tend to be higher in those parts of the world. So, you know, costs will be higher. So, you know, this where I'm going with all this is kind of one of Zoltan's key conclusions was stuff's just going to get, you know, secularly more expensive and to a certain extent more scarce or at least harder to get than it, than we've enjoyed for the past bunch of decades in the West. So this is kind of going to be like a, a slap in the face for us. Do you, yeah, uh, do, no. do, do you feel the same? No, uh, Sultan, of course, is far more eloquent than I am, but it's really based on the deglobalization concept. If you think about deglobalization as a concept, it's about the division of labor and the energy arbitrage. If you want to reverse that, you increase the marginal cost of uh, labor and you increase the marginal cost of energy relative to the, to the input. And that is exactly what goes on. And I think, you know, the scarcity is given uh, considering that the way we solve for this is additional investment. And if we take a concept like electric vehicles, if people really want more electric vehicles, I, I wouldn't understand why we want that. But if people really want to drive through those uh, by law instituted 2030, 2035 laws of you know, decommissioning the combustion engine cars, then the demand and energy is just going to fly through the roof. But, but again, you know, the best way to, to say how much I agree with Sultan is my 1090 model, right? If 10% of the economy needs to drive the 90%, let's just take the, the, big, uh, the biggest game in town right now, which is cloud business. What is cloud business about? Cloud business is about accessibility to data at all times, which means that these cloud companies are storing uh, data, which is growing in size exponentially. You know, the ability to generate electricity sits with a margin of error uh, on the output side of, you know, five to 10% a year, but you have an exponential demand on storing data. Storing data needs to run on server. Service needs to be cooled down. So just that one part of the economy, which is that what every, bit, every uh, consultant you will ever meet will tell you, 
oh, Adam, you run a great company, but you need to digitize everything from, you know, people visiting to when people goes to the loo, right? But that's fine. But that metadata needs to be stored somewhere. So by function, these meta, these very big metadata gather uh, companies are soaking up more and more energy in the system, in a system that has no ability to grow that exact supply. That generates, in my opinion, two, two issues. One is that how are they going to be part of the solution going forward? Because politically, maybe not in 23, but in 24, 25, when we're still unresolved on the electricity consumption and the ability to generate new electricity, they're going to be up against a political headwind. Secondarily, they need more energy output in a world that doesn't have the ability to baseload more. You know, I give you another example in Europe, Netherlands, who has one of the most progressive uh, energy uh, strategies in the world. Uh, Saxo owns a bank in, 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 in Amsterdam. And, and we last year put in for the Amsterdam Planning Commission to get some installment of electric vehicle charges. Do you know what the message back was? The grid network in the Netherlands, the most green, the most invested into green transformation economy in the world, didn't have any grid capacity until the middle of 23. So understand this, you know, there's a huge disconnect between what people want to achieve between right. now and 2035. And as you continue to drive that, the underlying microstructure has massive amount of uh, electricity consumption. You know, the reason why you have to buy your daughters and sons a bigger Apple phone in size is not that it's smarter. It's simply because the consumption on the apps that runs on them it is increasing faster than the ability to produce better batteries and storage in the lithium space, right? So everything that goes on in the world is, is a clear indication to you that we are in and up against the, the physical barriers of what we can do. So, you know, in order to solve this, we need to be more productive in the real economy, which is my positive point. The negative part is that everyone continues to pretend that we need a recession, a pivot from the Fed to get lower capital. No, the fact that we have higher threshold capital, I think Goldman calculated that the average cost of capital for companies in S&P 500 has gone to about 600 basis points. That is the best news in 20 years. Why, Adam? Because the marginal return on any new investments needs to be above 6%. Do you know where the any investment over 6% can be done? In the real economy. In the real economy, the ability for these, even the digital company to get and generate more electricity, to invest in CAPEX that actually offers them cheaper energy down the line. So we, we are really forcing the issue here in terms of uh, what goes on. So Stolten is absolutely right. And, 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 and to me, the, the second part, which I think is, is, is a crucial consultant part, is that the collateral that sits underneath all of this is getting weaker and smaller in size, which is one of the reasons why I, you know, when I'm being forced to say, what is your big bet for 23? It is that gold will go up. Why? Because, you know, if Adam, if you're going to borrow a significant amount of money from me, I don't want it in dollars. I don't want certainly in one. I certainly don't want it in Europe. You know what? I want some real collateral because I believe the collateral that sits in the real economy will do better. And then some people I know immediately is going to be on your channel and say, well, gold is not a real asset, but it's a real asset in the sense it survived 3,000, 4,000 years of economic wars and, 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 and whatever goes on. So I think more and more people are going to ask for gold and, and real assets as collateral in, in the future. You know, having a, you know, 
bunch of stocks in, in Tesla is not going to be good collateral value. Of course, it will have collateral value, but it will not be a face value at 100 or 50 even. It will probably be at 10 to 20. So the amount of collateral that sits in the global economy is getting smaller and smaller for an economy that in nominal terms is growing massively partly because of inflation and partly because there is not enough capital flowing through to the bottom line in terms of uh, increased uh, equity capital in both the stock market, but also in the fiscal economy. All right. Let, let me, let me re repeat back to you some of what I heard and you tell me if this is correct. So, um, you know, one way you could look at this is you could say, huh, you know, there's a lot of increasing drags on the economy going forward if we look through Zoltan's lenses, right? Higher inflation, higher wage costs, higher energy costs, uh, availability supply may be constrained. Um, you know, we know from the um, uh, all the rate hikes the central banks have been doing that the cost of capital um, is going up. And you just mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's like the threshold is now like 6%. Um, and so, you know, we'll be able to do less, right? And, and one view through that lens is, oh, well, we'll have less economic growth and that's just not good for, you know, we don't like that. We always like more growth if we can get it. What you're saying is, is, hey, this is great because when the cost of capital is too low, which we could argue it was for quite a long time, um, you get a lot of malinvestment, right? You get a lot of money flooding into things, capital flooding into things that shouldn't be. And you're basically saying, and I see you nodding as I'm saying this, you're basically saying, hey, this is now the higher cost of capital here and these factors I just rattled off, they're enforcing a, a, perhaps a much needed discipline on our capital allocation going forward. And that really the truly deserving projects now are gonna be the ones that get that capital. And they're gonna be the ones that lay the foundation for this future burst in, in growth that you're expecting in the future. Is, is that correct? 100%, 100%. Because you know, the, the only part of the economy right now where you can get excess return of 6% is the real economy. So it supersedes, super feeds to the same concept at all, at all times. If you have a deglobalization where the cost is increasing, and don't forget in the futures market, everyone says, if you need lower prices, you need higher prices. So higher prices of capital, higher prices in terms of inflationary goods product, is actually making the companies making better products because now you need to differentiate when you cannot pass on the prices, you need to differentiate on quality and on better product over time. Where in the past, there was enough money flowing around, there was enough free stuff in the world that we could all access it at zero capital. But at 6%, all of a sudden, company, the company will be differentiated by their ability to navigate the increase in cost input and then delivering a product that either is the same quality or better quality in order to maintain or get market share. And that is all the way from banking to green transformation to energy uh, uses in houses, whatever. The, 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 the beauty here is that what I essentially talk about here is increasing productivity. And if you're investing with productivity, you cannot lose money, Adam. It's, it's, it's the most beautiful concept in the world, maybe one of the most elusive. But think about it. If you're buying something that is productive, you are having a marginal return that is higher than the marginal input of cost, right? So from, 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 from me, it, that is one of the reasons why I'm not so blatantly negative on the market. I see all the trouble that Sultan and everybody else sees. I see the economy could slow down, but I know, or at least I think I know that the response both from a 
national from a, from a political side, but also from the corporate side, which is more important, from the bottom up of companies right now, as I went around in Q4 and Q3 to talk to companies, all of a sudden they were not talking about passing on prices. They were talking about how do we redefine ourselves inside this ESG label, not because we want to be an ESG, but just basically we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And as you focused on being part of the solution instead of being part of the problem, you will ultimately create a productivity. You know, 10 years from now, when I go to universities to speak, they will be having and seeking jobs in companies that are part of better water irrigation, uh, vertical farming, solution-based stuff, where now when I go to a business school or to a university, I give them a, a, a spiel on productivity and the global economy or whatever, and they come up to me after and say, you know, very impressive, very good, but I just want to start an app that makes me 100 million bucks. Right. Yeah. Or what NFT that, that, should I buy? Yeah. And, and, that, that, and that's not to blame on them. It's to blame on the time. So increasing the threshold of investment takes away a lot of stuff that should never have been started in the first place. Secondarily, the way the flow will come from the microstructure is that companies will invest in stuff that has a real delivery in, in terms of improving the product. So I think you will see better quality products five years from now, and you see companies all of a sudden taking market share based on not having more eyeballs, but having more balls to do what is needed to, to create a better product. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. Uh, that's great, Steen. Um, well, look, I, I can tell you with confidence from the feedback that I've received that most, I would say almost everybody watching this video, uh, shares a frustration with um, the misallocation of capital uh, that's gone on over the past largely, you know, 20 plus years, largely because of central banks keep keeping the cost of capital so low. Um, that has created all these crazy price deformations as well, which has made it hard to to buy something, um, which made it hard to buy value because pretty much everything has been priced um, more than it has deserved to be, right? Um, so uh, I, I know there's a hunger amongst that crowd to be able to get out of the speculation game, right? What asset can I buy that I think is just going to go higher tomorrow, given the the ever rising tide of, of, of liquidity intervention. Um, no sane person likes to play that game because you're always worried about the rug pull that, that could and will inevitably happen. Um, and so people are much more interested in buying uh, productivity, like you said, something they know that is going to create value again and again and again over the years. Um, and so if we do indeed return to this era that you're talking about, I think this audience will be cheering it loudly. Um, uh, I do want to get to your market outlook uh, for next year or for this year. And um, uh, you always do a great job, Steen, of, of really opening the kimono and saying, hey, here are the percentages on, on how I'm, I'm allocated. Um, if you're comfortable doing that, would love to hear it. Before we get there, though, I do have a few more sort of macro questions for you. Um, the first is, uh, I mentioned in, in the intro or in my, yeah, in the intro, I think, um, that when I had you on a year ago, you very presciently said, hey, uh, the, the, the Fed is basically going to war against inflation and we're having a pivot. Back then, the pivot was from easing to tightening and hiking. Uh, and that's really going to that's going to be super material. And the market really is not pricing that in right now. And you were proved right in spades in 2022. 
I'm just I'm just curious. Did 2022 unfold the way that you thought it would when we had that discussion a year ago? It never does, Adam. Uh, I have to be honest. So I, I often say to to rookies that even if I knew where the Fed's 10-year interest rate would be at the end of the year, there are so many paths by which we need to travel to get to there that it's almost impossible. I think uh, you know. Uh, uh, a point being, you know, uh, although I expected high interest rate, I also expected commodity to do well. It did do well, but it did much better all the way into August, September when Fed started to hike uh, the uh, increments uh, of uh, interest rate. It's kind of interesting. Commodity came down while financial condition came down because, but I have to put that down to people who are not really understanding fundamental economics. But, yeah. but they, you know, it played out in the sense that that they stayed the course on inflation. Uh, there is still, in my opinion, a massive misunderstanding of financial condition and how wide that really is in scope and how much it actually is predicting what both inflation and growth would do going into the future. Uh, but but net-net, uh, it was a year that, uh, as you say, totally randomly, we got a lot of praise for getting you know both inflation and Fed hikes are right. But but I, I wouldn't say in any shape or form that was an easy year. I you know personally, uh, Ukraine was was a big event in February for me. I uh, had had the opportunity to sit down with Ukraine's ambassador to Denmark uh, just two days after the war started. And here you're sitting in front of a person who any minute knew he could be called back to uh, to his country to fight yeah. in uniform. A guy who told me a lesson that I should have listened to. He said, you know, Russia may have one million soldiers under arms, but we are 45 million and Ukraine is never going to give up. I think, you know, I was, uh, you know, it, it was very emotionally hard for a hardcore uh, facts guy like me, macro guy to sit there and be in an emotion, you know, and one on one hand being, uh, you know, balanced in terms of giving him his uh, ability to, to tell his story, but also not become part of the propaganda. So, so I think that changed, it's accelerated things, but, but no, Adam, what I'm trying to say is, I never think this is easy. I actually think it's uh, why I keep doing this. This is the most difficult job in the world, trying to navigate uh, these uh, thousand upon thousand of paths that a year gives you. And you could give me, you know, where Fed and inflation is at the end of the year. I would still not feel comfortable in uh, how to trade it. Okay, um, I really appreciate your honesty there, Steen, and uh, you're underscoring kind of why we created wealthy on in the first place is that um you know especially the era in which we live it's a very uh uncertain and and now a really important sort of transitory era probably to be measured at least in years um with some of these massive trends you know, like the deglobalization that we just talked about and the, the switch from a unipolar to a multipolar world um that even for a guy like you who's been doing this for a living um for a long time super smart lots of resources um, access to great insiders, you know, like your example there about the Ukrainian ambassador, um, still super hard for you, even if you were given, you know, kind of the envelope uh, with the year's results at the beginning of the year. Uh, and so, you know, our message to people is, look, it's really hard for the average investor to navigate this alone. And this is why you want to work with a really good active manager that that keeps in mind and factors in all the stuff that you and I are talking about here, Steen. Um, all right, well, look, um, last sort of macro section here. Um, you mentioned earlier that you don't think that there's going to be a recession, a meaningful recession uh, in 2023. Like I said, I think you're an outlier on that versus 
many of the folks I talked to, super excited to understand a little bit more deeply your thoughts why. Let me just mention a few things and then I'll let you 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 know run on this topic as far as you want. Um, a lot of people think that we're due for an earnings recession, at least uh, here, especially in the first half of 2023, as the impact of all the rate hikes begin to really be felt in full, right? Because there's a there's a delay between when the central bank, you know, pulls a lever and then it's manifested in the global economy. And, you know, people argue whether that's six months or 12 months or whatever, but we probably have not seen the full force of most of the Fed's rate hikes yet manifest in the economy, right? Um, so first, there's concerns about an earning recession. Uh, we are seeing a rolling over of the global housing market, at least largely in the West so far, um, really seems to be the real deal here in the States now. Um, uh, that impacts the wealth effect um, because a lot more people own homes than than own uh, you know than have a substantial ownership in the stock market. Um, and uh, we're increasingly still early days, but we're still increasingly seeing uh, a, a wave of layoffs happening here in the states. That, of course, if we get like an earnings recession and whatnot, could lead to a lot more corporate layoffs later on this year. Um, so people are looking at factors like that and getting quite concerned, um, you know, about about recession risk. And of course, there's a bunch of factors that I could list here. Even just today, there are articles saying that the St. Louis Fed, by one measure, is saying the U.S. is already in, in you know, has already entered a recession. Um, how how do you think we're going to avoid a recession this coming year? First of all, recession is uh, is people talk about recession as if it's a predefined concept. Uh, everyone has their own definition of recession, like everyone has their own definition of welfare. When you talk about welfare policy, uh, so you need to qualify whether you talk about recession in real GDP terms or in nominal terms. So the US economy has a run rate of right now of between six and 7% inflation, which means that the top line of all companies in the US will grow by six to 7% automatically. Everything will, you know, will not smell, talk or act like it's in a recession, even though the real GDP may fall, because the real economy is driven in nominal terms, not in real terms. The real terms is only used for us economists to sort of get the price impact. I agree on the price uh, uh, recession in earnings, but not from the presumption that you make. I think what is really going on is what I alluded to earlier is that companies now has to pass on the, uh, the price uh, increases in inputs to the consumer, which means that this whole drive toward productivity, better quality needs to be explained and needs to be, in, uh, be, be acted on. But the recession is going to be that the margins will be cut, not because of uh, cost of capital, but uh, from the other side, basically because the cost of energy and the supply side remains relatively elevated. In terms of the housing market, give me a break, Adam. I mean, uh, you know, 70% of U.S. mortgages are fixed. So the price goes down 20% after going off 400%. And you want me to be concerned? I mean, I can let the head ahead go around in Denmark uh, to support all you guys in the U.S. Uh, if you're over leveraged and you don't have equity, then fine. But if you have a fixed mortgage rate, you, you actually should have, you know, your net outstanding balance on your debt should have been reduced by between 30, 20 and 30% last year on a fixed mortgage. So that is not how a housing crisis starts. Was the excess prices? Yeah, absolutely. 
and and in terms of the you know all of these models, uh, I, I was thinking about that and having a hard conversation. We like to have a, a you know no no rules uh, uh, conversation at lunch in our team, and I was just provoking everybody saying, think about you know everybody that ever does a call is really just figuring out first what they want to you know, call on. So like where is SMP going to be? Is there going to be a recession on? And then people reverse engineer why there's going to be like that. And that is exactly what you did from you know 98% of the street. And you know, I was looking at a statistic over the uh, over the over the Christmas where the SP 500 from the major US uh, companies, uh, bank uh, supply side companies, uh, you know, all the big analysts of the world. Do you know what the R square is between their call and the stock market and uh, and their calls? Four percent. Yeah, I betting it's pretty low. I mean, Four percent. You're, you're, <laughs> I mean, you're much. You're much. Four percent. I mean, so so you know it. You know what people think. The first rule of of macro is what everybody thinks will happen will not happen. Uh, will not happen. You know, yeah. Then you need to figure out why it will not happen. But 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 fundamentally, Adam, and and I, I smile a little bit because every time I'm introduced by my CEO of Saxo Bank, he always says, "This is Steen Jacobson, our chief investment officer. He's called five of the last two recessions." Right. Um, now I'm actually in the opposite camp. I'm I'm the guy who says, "I don't think it's happened." Full employment. You know, even if you know jobless claims was running at, they are not, but if they were running at 300, 400,000, it would be way into the later part of this year. If I'm wrong, I'm only going to be wrong by Q4. And then I will have time to navigate that. But what I think is going on is that the massive amount of investment is needed. There will be a number of support factors coming in. You know, if energy remains elevated, there will be support action done by 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 uh, governments to support that. You know, the the low income brackets will be supported from the inflationary impact because it's all about getting the votes. So I I'm looking at the next policy response to what people think is the problem. So I'm not ignoring what people think, Adam. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm instead of focusing on whether they're right or wrong, I'm looking at what would be the policy response to that uh, setup that they the premises they set up for themselves. And the and the, the response to that will be increased economic activity. It will not be lower interest rate because it's not possible, but it will be you know checks in the mail and 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 increased support. And and for me, you know this this recession call is you need to qualify one is it in nominal or in real gdp in real gdp maybe there's another negative quarter uh, i don't know but in real gdp terms we'll be flying and growing at between three and five percent easily if not seven to eight percent in nominal terms so you cannot see it you cannot smell it you cannot feel it and you will not be able to identify the recession if you if you live in the real economy okay great god uh so many questions I still want to ask you, but time-wise, we're going to have to move on here. But one last policy question, and I can't believe I haven't asked it to you sooner, um, especially given your spot-on call about what happened in 22 with the Fed. Um, of course, all the discussion right now is about um, you know, the potentiality of a Fed pivot. Um, and we could spend you know another half hour talking about just that alone. But but real quick, Steen, um, do you expect there to be a material Fed pivot um, in 2023? And if so, what do you expect the response to that to be? Uh, the easy answer is no, but, but uh, you know, 
again, if you want to, if you ask a question, what it, if there's going to be pivot, you need to look for what will be the reason for that pivot. It's not going to be, you know, uh, the economy collapsing as I identified. The one concern I have is the amount of U.S. debt. This year alone, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury will need to issue 2.4 trillion dollars worth of uh, new new paper. And that happens at a time where the Federal Reserve is reducing balance sheet and overseas buyers of fixed income is not showing up anymore. There was data out this morning from Japan. They are reducing significantly the amount of overseas stuff they buy, partly because they need the money domestically. And if you combine you know, the, the fiscal deficits projection of 1.1, uh, you have $150 million, billion dollars worth of ad additional expenses. You have uh, the Fed rolling up uh, at least what they say, $720 billion. And you have foreigners reducing by 300. And then you have uh, Fed not paying the Treasury actually $100 billion. That's what That's $2.4 trillion. Adam. I mean, so we may have a, a, a Treasury accident, a Treasury you know, inability to actually raise capital. And, and combined with what's going on in the... You know, the GOP party can't even vote to to get a majority uh, chairman in the, in the yeah. speaker in the. In, in, I mean, so the political environment is just getting in worse. And, and I think we live in the most political unstable time since uh, prior to World War Two, because simply there are so much going on and so little facts uh, being traded and so much uh, propaganda. I mean. You know, we always blame the Chinese and the Russian for propaganda, but make no mistakes. Uh, I think the U.S. And, and the Western governments are even better at propaganda than these guys, because at least they try to be a little bit honest. So, so for, for me, that that is the only pivot I see. The 2.4 trillion needs to be addressed one way or the other. That pivot could be that Fed doesn't do the 720 they expected to do, but I doubt it. So it has to come from something else, which is a treasury accident. That's the way you get a pivot, not because they're back down on inflation, because right now their legacy is entirely based on whether they get inflation down or not. Uh, and, and, you know, with the, the dynamic trio of uh, goods prices uh, under the influence of uh, deglobalization and then uh, energy and wages not coming down, I don't see inflation getting low enough to, uh, to, to, to create a path for, for a lower Fed. Okay. Um, all right. I'm going to have to leave it there, but that's super fascinating. Um, all right. Well, look, um, market outlook. Okay, so um, you, you've laid out what you think is going to happen macro-wise. Um, you obviously, Steen, are responsible for helping Saxo navigate, you know, billions of dollars uh, through what's going to happen next year. Um, what? How are you currently? Well, what do you expect to happen, and how are you currently allocating uh, to uh, for that future? In, in terms of allocation, I don't have any. Our interview with Steen will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And remember, we're continuing our practice of publishing my top takeaways from these weekly interviews. To get mine from this interview with Steen for free, just go to Wealthion.com slash Adam's Notes. And finally, if the challenging macro outlook Steen has detailed in this interview has you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends and risks that Steen has mentioned here. 
Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Steen Jacobson. Thank you.